Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. Today, you will notice, usually when I teach, there's a slide presentation and a handout. And today, you just have Lisa and God's Word. And I've been teaching the ladies, we don't apologize. But we say thank you for your grace. If you came expecting a handout and beautiful slides, thank you for your grace because we don't have those things tonight. But this is a a message that I've joked that I could teach like with my eyes shut. And so God is um, (laughs) taking me at my word tonight. I had planned on doing some of those things, but my, my day was different than what I thought it would be. So Hebrews, this is entitled How to Stand confidently before God. And we're all at different places in that with our spiritual growth. And then at the same time, when we sin, and we know that sin separates us before God, we're at different places in how long we hang our head before God, you know, wanting to know when it's safe to peek up and come out again. But I want to teach you, um, my passion is really knowing Jesus, knowing his humanity, knowing that he understands us, knowing his character, that his sacrifice was enough. And I love that I'm co-teaching with Bishop because when we kind of put together what weeks I was going to be here and what weeks he was going to be here, he really likes teaching the covenant. And those were the weeks I wasn't going to be here. And those of y'all who know me know I really come in with a big grace perspective. That is my gift to talk about God's grace. Bishop is gifted to talk about faith. So he comes in with a different perspective. So we're going to give you both sides of Hebrews. And I'm just thankful that we have those different, you know, it takes, it takes all different kinds of perspectives. We all know God in our own ways. We all know a facet of God's character. Nobody yet knows all of him. But we all know facets from what he's taught us and what he's brought us through. So I just love how we can bring those different um, facets together. So a couple commentaries that I have tonight. um, I used three different commentaries, and what I learned was that confuses me. So next time I won't use three. (laughs) I kept wondering, what page did that come from? But Warren Wearsby is a very um, accessible, understandable commentator. He writes little books like this about every book in the Bible. This one is Be Confident, okay? Hebrews. And then this is the Holman New Testament commentary. Um, The editor is Max Anders. Author is Thomas Lee. And I've really enjoyed this one too. And then I have a more scholarly one by, I think it's Arthur Pink. Um, I didn't bring it tonight, but um, he's very scholarly. And Hebrews is a very intellectually demanding book. And I will confess, there are very confusing things to me in the book of Hebrews. Even chapter 4 that we're looking at tonight, when you read it, it starts to go round and round and back then and now and back then and now, and it's, it can be confusing. But tonight I'm going to distill for you the main points. And if you're confused, don't worry, I, I am too. And um, we're not going to go line by line, but more subjects. So we're going to look at Jesus as our high priest from Hebrews 2. Two, three, and four tonight. 
I'm going to want to jump ahead to chapter 5 because it's so good because it says he's, um, he, can, he can guide the ignorant and the misguided. I just love that because sometimes I'm the ignorant and misguided, and he can patiently lead us. But that's the good news for next week is from Hebrews chapter 5. So if you're confused, it's okay. I probably am too. So just so you know. Um, and I've been teaching this book for many years. This is my second time around teaching this material. Um, before it was a small group of maybe five or six women. So, um, it, it, and I teach it because it was transformative for my life. So that's why I love to teach it. So first of all, we're going to talk about the purpose, the audience, and the themes. And they're somewhat interrelated. So just, just hang with me. But the purpose of the book is it's a letter of exhortation. Now that's a big fancy word that means encouragement. It's a, it's a book of exhortation. Hebrews 13, 22, and in a lot of books in the Bible, it will tell you the purpose, and that's helpful. Hebrews 13, 22, the author, who many attribute to Paul, but other scholars say that it's not written with Paul's style and theology, so they say it's anonymous. I'm not going to go into all of that tonight, but we'll just say some attribute it to Paul. Before, when I taught it, I said it was Paul. <laughs> now I'll say scholars disagree. And you'll find when I teach, I'm like Pastor Terry, I don't know everything. And so there are some things where I'll say, I don't know. What I've learned in theology is I love how they present one scholar thinks this, one scholar thinks this, and then the author will say, but I believe this. And so different scholars believe different things, but we all agree on the main things. So um, Hebrews 13, 22, the author says, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The word exhortation, the root word in the Greek is parakaleo, and I haven't taken Greek yet, so I, I know I didn't probably say it correctly. <laughs> parakaleo, but it means to call to one side. And I always think of Pastor Willie because he gave an example one time of how he just called someone in his congregation to his side and said, you know, this thing that you're doing, it just doesn't honor God. So it's to call to one side. That's why Holy Spirit is our paraclete, one who is at our side, guiding us and leading us. So it's encouragement. When I study my Bible, whenever I see the words, let us, that's the New American Standard. I don't know how your version says it. Um, but when I see let us, that tells me this is an exhortation. This is an exhortation. Let us. It's saying this is something we need to do. Pay attention. And there are 17. Let's see. Let me make sure I got that correctly. I believe it's 17 let us in the New Testament. And 12 of them are in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot. There's a lot of let us. I may have gotten that wrong, but there are 12 of them in the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to just quickly tell you what they are. And um, you don't need to write these down, but just to give you some examples, Hebrews 4.1, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, anyone comes short of it. 
Hebrews 4.11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. 4.14, let us hold fast our confession. 4.16, let us draw near with confidence. 6.1, let us press on to maturity. 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart. And then there are a bunch more. Hold fast our confession of faith. Lay aside every encumbrance and run that race. Let us show gratitude. Let us continually sacrifice to God. So it is a book of exhortation. But on the opposite side, the big 12 exhortations, there are warnings. So it's a book of exhortations and warnings. And there are um, five main sections that are warnings. There's drifting from the word, Hebrews 2. Doubting the word or having a hard heart, that's Hebrews 2 to 4-ish. Being dull and sluggard, um, like sluggish, dullness towards the word, that's 511 to 620. Despising the word, that's in chapter 10. And refusing to hear the word, that's in chapter 12. So you'll be going right along and it'll say, let us draw near with a sincere heart, with a full assurance of faith. But it'll say, don't fall away. Beware lest any of you fall away. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> but there's a reason. So we're, we're going to get there. So the audience, what do we know about them? We know that they're second generation believers. So people that followed Christ, became Christians, and then led the Hebrews to the Lord. So second generation believers. Hebrews 2, 3 says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So those are the ones that heard Jesus who led them to the Lord. And I'm not going to go through all of these verses, but I'm just going to tell you who they were. They had labored with love to meet the needs of suffering Christians. Hebrews 6.10 said, God won't forget your work and the love that you've shown. They had endured persecution. Hebrews 10.32 and 33. It says they had endured a great conflict of sufferings. They were made a public spectacle with reproaches and tribulations. They were immature, stumbling, and faltering in their Christian faith. Hebrews 5:11 through 12, this, they said concerning him, and I think that reference there was Melchizedek. It says, concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary, elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. They were in danger of apostasy. Here's a warning. Hebrews 3:12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And the big thing is that they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And that is basically what the whole book is about. Hebrews 13, um, 7 and 9. It says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The, he's talking about the ones who taught them about Jesus. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. 
through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So we, he's saying, don't get caught up in all the rules, but imitate those who have taught you about what Jesus did. So the setting is um, before the fall of the temple, about 64 to 68, because it's written in such a way that it, that it assumes the temple is still standing. It doesn't um, mention its destruction. So let's talk about the theme. And I've got, um, I've got some quotes, and then I'll tell you Lisa's easy way to say it. The situation was the Jewish religion was still competing for the hearts of these new believers, for their hearts, minds, and souls. And what the author is saying is, how can you go back to that? And his whole point that, that we're going to see in um, all these weeks is Jesus is better. And I tried to find, when I taught my class before, there were these chips, and the brand was called Way Better, and I held up my chips, you know, Jesus is way better. I couldn't find them this go-around. But the theme really is Jesus is better than that old way of religion, than the system of Judaism. Um, Wearsby says, how can you go back to your former religion? Take time to evaluate what you have in Jesus. He's better than anything you had under the law. So the writer is contrasting the Old Testament system of the law and the New Testament system of grace. That's why Bishop's going to cover, and I'll touch on it a little bit, that Old Covenant and New Covenant. And the primary difference you're going to see, this is what makes my heart race, is access to God. Under the Old Covenant, somebody represented you before God. And under the new covenant, we have direct access to God. And that excites me. That excites me. Direct access to God. So the primary theme, Jesus is better. This key word better is used 13 times. So it's showing the superiority of Jesus in his salvation over that system of Judaism and the priest and all of that. Just a few of them, and we're not going to cover chapter 1, but it basically says Jesus is better than the angels. That's chapter 1. It's all about the angels. Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than Moses. Um, chapters 1 through 3 basically show that Jesus was superior to the angels, the prophets, and Moses. His priesthood is better than Aaron's. His new covenant is better than the old covenant. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. So why is Jesus better? So the old system of the law couldn't accomplish what Jesus' death on the cross could accomplish, which was a once for all time. Y'all should take note every time I say once for all time, because I'm going to say it a lot. A once for all time sacrifice for sins. They didn't have to sacrifice over and over and over. Nobody has to sacrifice for your sin anymore. It's paid for. It's paid for. One sacrifice for all sin for all time. Paid for. The core truth is that we have access into God's presence. That's just good stuff. Some other key words, um, one is perfect, and this word is referring to our standing before God 
And his point is going to be that it couldn't be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats, but only through Jesus' perfect sacrifice, this better blood. You're going to see eternal. There's eternal salvation, eternal judgment, eternal redemption, the eternal spirit, an eternal inheritance, an eternal covenant. And then also heavenly, a heavenly calling, heavenly gift. You're going to see the heavenly sanctuary. And we're going to talk, I believe it's next week, about the tabernacle and how all the things in the tabernacle are just shadows of what's in heaven. And how the different pieces in the tabernacle, and you've heard some of this before, but they're all identified by Jesus. The table of showbread, he's the bread of life. The menorah, he's the light of the world. So we're going to look at that too, and that's exciting. So with that, let's, um, let's jump into chapter 4. So chapter 4, well, let's see. Okay, so I'm going to start. Okay, let me just start with this, and then I'm going to go 3 and then 4. So the theme of what I'm going to talk about right now is Jesus leads us to a promised rest which is chapter four. But I want to give you some background because when I looked at what is this rest, what does this mean? In the Old Testament, there were two types of rest mentioned. And, and that's where the confusion comes in in chapter four because rest can mean a couple different things in the Old Testament. There was God's Sabbath rest because on the seventh day he rested. But then there was also... And the Sabbath day, that's um, ex ex Exodus 35, 2, the Sabbath rest. But then there's also this land of Canaan. That reference is Deuteronomy 12, 9. And it says, for you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. So there was a rest of God, which was a Sabbath rest, but then there was a land which was a place of rest. So remember those two things when we're talking about rest. So the, the background for what the writer is telling us, I'm not gonna burp tonight like I did on Sunday, excuse me. <coughs> I ate cheese on the way to church and that's not what speakers are supposed to do. <laughs> so the background, remember the 12 spies from Numbers 13 and 14. Well, they went to spy out the land to see what it was like, the 12 spies. 10 of them came back and said, we, um, it's a land full of giants. But then two of them, Joshua and Caleb, had that different spirit. They said um, that, that we can take the land. They gave a good report in faith, but because of the people's unbelief, which you'll see over and over in chapter four, God prevented them from entering that land of rest, that inheritance. Psalm 95, 10 through 11, talking about these people, it's, re it's referring to what God said. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. So they were prohibited from entering into that land of rest because of their unbelief. 
So when he's saying they can't enter my rest, it was that land of rest, the land of Canaan. With that, now turn with me. Let's go to Hebrews 3, um, verse 16. How are we doing? You doing okay? All right. I am too, <laughs> which I'm really glad. Thank you, Lord. Hebrews um, 3, starting with verse 16, and this is concerning God, okay? He's talking about God. For who provoked him, referring to God, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? These are the unbelievers. And with whom was he angry for, for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter, it's referring to his rest, because of unbelief. So that's the context as we go into chapter 4, okay? So let's jump to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear. What did I call that if it said let us? Exor, it's an exhortation. Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they, referring to the Israelites, did also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works, referring to God, were finished from the foundation of the world, this is where it gets confusing. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, so when it says therefore, it means what did we just hear? So they're saying because the Israelites did not believe, because those, 12, those 10 spies came back with a negative report, God got angry and said, they're not going to enter into my rest. So that's what he's referring to. So he says, therefore, verse 6, since it remains for some to enter it, referring to the rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes, okay, so here he's explaining what he means. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David in the Psalms, after so long a time, just has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, so he's saying, if Joshua had led them into rest, if they had believed, if Joshua had led them into rest, he wouldn't have spoken of another day after that. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but what he's saying is Joshua didn't lead them into the promised rest because of unbelief. And he's saying there still is rest for us to enter. And because Jesus is better than Joshua, Jesus will lead us into it. Okay, so hang on. 
Verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There re are we the people of God? Yes. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, here it is again, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Did you know that you needed to be diligent <laughs> to work hard to enter rest? Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Here's a warning through following the same example of obedience. Okay, so let's, let's break it down just a little bit because I know it goes round and round from them to us and there's different references mixed in there. So um, Holman distills it by saying chapter four shows us that Jesus was superior, Jesus was better than Joshua because Joshua had tried to lead the Jews into rest in the promised land, but they didn't reach their goal. Okay, so Joshua tried to lead them because of their unbelief, they did not make it. But Jesus, and so there's still a rest for the people of God. There's still a Sabbath rest for the people of God and Jesus can lead us into it. All that confusing stuff, that's distilled what it means. So then the question is, well, what is this rest? And a lot of things in scripture, in the kingdom of God, this is a principle I've learned in theology, there's the already and there's the not yet. And sometimes we're standing in the already and the not yet. We're standing in both. There are parts of the kingdom of God we are experiencing right now. And there are parts that we are experiencing, well, there are parts that are not experienced yet. And so there are parts that it's both. It's the already and the not yet. What is the rest? Is it for already? Is it for later? Could it be both? So this is one of those places where I'm going to tell you what some different commentators believe. Because when I was doing this, this is what I wrote. I have no idea what the rest is. But it says, but let's see what we can learn about it. And then I will share with you different ideas from Bible scholars. Because even Bishop tried to explain to me what he thought it was. I did a call a friend and I didn't really even understand what he had to say. So... <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was pretty clear, but there's a whole, we can look at it different ways. I'm going to share with you what some scholars that I trust in, what they think, okay? But first, let's see what Jesus has to say about rest, because I don't doubt that at all. What does Jesus have to say about rest, okay? Matthew 11:28 28 and 29. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So that's an already. That's for right now. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Joshua failed to lead them into rest their rest, re rest remains, and we're told to be diligent to enter that rest. Who gives it to us? 
Jesus. He's better. He's better than angels. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. Joshua. Yeah. It's being in the right chair, believing the right things. You are walking in that rest. So Jesus gives us rest. Now, pink, my big pink commentary that I didn't bring because it's so heavy. He says the rest is more rest of our conscience, that our conscience no longer has to fight with God. And you will talk a lot about conscience in the book of Hebrews. And it's a rest of your soul. Holman refers to it as a spiritual rest. He says it's a present experienced with Christ in which the Lord provides his presence, his peace, and joy to replace the labor and heavy, and heavy burdens of life. Wearsby says, he mentions that Canaan, the land of Canaan, represented a spiritual inheritance that had to be claimed by faith. A couple cross-references, Ephesians 1 says that God and Jesus Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. So Wearsby looks at it as it's a spiritual inheritance of Christ. And if any of you were here when I taught Ephesians, you may, may remember I brought a checkbook and said, all of those blessings that we have in Christ, they're all in the bank account. We need to write the checks because there's money in the bank. We have blessings. We have an inheritance. So in summary, there's spiritual rest, spiritual inheritance, a Sabbath rest for Christians now. I also believe that, that when we're in heaven, there's a rest there too because we're just... We're going to be with Jesus. There, there's going to be a rest there too. That's, Lisa thinks about that too because Lisa loves to think about heaven. <laughs> I just, I can't wait to be face to face with Jesus. And when I go up to the mountains, I'm like, God, why do I love this place so much? It's because I see him at, at every turn. It's like I'm, it's my sacred place. It's like second to heaven to me to be in the mountains. So let's go back to verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. So we've rested from all of those works of trying to please God. We've chosen to believe by faith in what Jesus has done. Verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Okay, so I'm going to mention something here now, and I'm going to explain it a little more um, a couple pages down. One thing I learned in seminary that has really helped me is called the indicative and the imperative. Actually, I think I'll jump ahead. Let me jump ahead, and I'll cover it now. So the indicative, okay. So they re refer to two different verb moods. Verbs can have tenses, voice, moods, all kinds of things I can't remember, but my book, I can remind myself with my little book that tells me. But there's different moods. So the indicative is a statement of fact. It's just a statement of fact. 
but the imperative is a command. So the indicative says, the book is on the podium. But the imperative says, put the book on the podium. Okay. So, the indicatives in the Bible tell us what God has done. They're the facts, what God has done. The imperatives tell us what we're supposed to do because of what God has done. So it says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. What does that sound like, a fact or a command? It's a fact. It's the indicative. It's the fact. This is the truth. There's a rest for the people of God. And then it says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That's the imperative. So what I learned in my New Testament course is the indicative, the truth, drives the imperative. Whenever God gives us command, you can track back a little bit, and then a lot of times you'll find the truth. That's the reason why you can do that, why you should do that. There's a rest. Be diligent to enter it. Why? Because there's a rest. Be diligent to enter it. But why? But there's a rest. There's a truth of what God has done that tells us what we should do. Okay? Indicative, imperative. The indicative, the truth, drives the behavior. Okay. So I'm going to mention that again in a couple minutes. So remember it. If I had a piece of chocolate, I'd, actually I do have chocolate in my car, so I might have a prize for whoever remembers it. But I don't know, it's my caramel egg. I don't know if I want to give that up. <laughs> I've just got one of them. Love my chocolate. Okay. Okay. Two people told me to be myself tonight, so that was just a little bit of Lisa, right, Terry? And my friend Aislin, who's probably watching from Canada, she said, just be you. Okay. So the rest is a reality that believers must claim. It involves obedience, okay? So what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to Jesus being the high priest because that's what I could talk about all night. So we're going to look through um, chapters 2, 3, and 4, pick up on what it says about Jesus being our high priest, and then next week we'll um, look at chapter 5 and what that says. That's a fancy name that basically says Jesus represented you before God so that you no longer need a representative. He did it for us. So now we have that confidence to stand before God. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. And what we're going to see in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 is this. And it must be important because he writes about it in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5. Pinch yourself. Does it hurt? means you're human. And when Jesus pinched himself, hurt. It hurt. He was human too. In order to be the high priest he had to be, he had to be made human. And he's going to say that chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. Verse, chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is referring to Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might render those who through fear of death 
were subject to slavery all their lives. So I'm not going to elaborate on that verse, but I want you to, to catch he himself likewise partook of the same. Since we're flesh and blood, Jesus had to become flesh and blood to liberate us. Jump down to verse 17. Therefore, it's referring to what we just looked at. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that's us, in all things, so that... Here we're going to get the reason why. Anytime you see us so that, it means why. What's the purpose? Why was Jesus made like us? <laughs> I love this. He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One thing that I like to teach is that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And people think of the Father as angry and judgmental and in his wrath. And, and God does have a righteous anger. But Jesus is merciful. So if Jesus is merciful, so is the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So these aspects that I'm talking about Jesus... His grace, his compassion, his approachability. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse 18. For since he himself, referring to Jesus, was tempted and, th and that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So the very first description we see of Jesus as the high priest, merciful. That's the first thing he says about him. Not righteous or holy, merciful. He's merciful because we fall short. He's merciful. He's able to help those who are tempted because he was tempted. Tempted means in the Greek to try or test one's faith, one's virtue, or character by enticement to sin. So just like we're tempted with selfishness or lust or greed or jealousy or anger, bitterness, laziness, Jesus was tempted. Everything we have faced in temptation, he faced, but he didn't sin. But he knows what it's like to face that. He knows what it's like. That's how he can be merciful, because he's faced it. He knows. He knows. This was the definition I got in um, Answers in Genesis. It says, sinful nature is not sin in and of itself, but the tendency towards sin. And Jesus, even with this tendency of being a human, didn't sin. He was human just like we are. He could sin just like we can. He was tempted just like we are, but he didn't sin. He didn't sin. So when we're tempted to sin, Jesus can give us sympathy. He can feel. He feels together with us. I think I'm going to define that word in a little bit. But he feels with us, and he can give us encouragement and he can inspire us because he was victorious over sin. 
So my favorite verse, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore. So he's talked about rest, and then there's that scripture, right, Pastor Tom, the word of active is living. The word of God is living and active. That one, that famous scripture. And then we're jumping to verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, we have this merciful human faithful high priest who has passed through the heavens and we're going to talk about that a little more next week when we talk about the earthly tabernacle the heavenly tabernacle and he names him jesus the son of god let us there it is again let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses he's going to reiterate what he just said but one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin therefore let us therefore okay what did i say this was the indicative right the indicative is we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens jesus the son of god he was tempted in all things like we are he didn't sin this is the truth. He's described this merciful high priest, this faithful high priest. In the next chapter, he's going to say he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. This is the truth. This drives the behavior. Therefore, what does it say? Let us. That's our encouragement. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Okay, so here's the truth. We have a merciful, faithful high priest who knows what it's like to be human, who knows what temptation is like, who knows what weakness is like. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, chapter 5, because of the truth. But therefore, that means because of the truth that I just told you about. Let us, encouragement, do this. Draw near to the throne of grace. And not timidly and with our head covered like, God, don't strike me down. No, with confidence. With confidence. Why? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that. I like to say we're going to get um, four things. So that we may receive mercy and find grace. And where it says to help, I count that as number. Well, that's three. When, that's the fourth thing, in time of need, okay? Mercy, grace, and help, when, in time of need. And those of y'all who have seen me teach this before, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but y'all know I like to do the five W's and an H. And if y'all had a handout and I had a slide, this is what we would say, okay? Who? Us. What? Draw near. Where? To the throne of grace. How? With confidence. Why? To receive mercy and find grace to help when in time of need. It's all there, the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, how, where, why. It just fits that perfectly. Who, us, what, draw near, where, to the throne of grace. How? With confidence. Why? To, re to find mercy and grace to help. When? When you're needy. So when you're needy, 
Yeah, I was going to say like me, like I'm, I'm up, woman, I'm up and down. I'm up and down. I get up at five in the morning and I'm up and down until I fall asleep at 11 at night. In time of need, every day, sometimes more than once a day. Okay, so it says he can sympathize with our weaknesses. So I'm going to, I got ahead of myself because I could just preach that in my sleep. But it says he can sympathize with our weaknesses. What does that mean? Verse 4, 15, there's this 14 through 16, it goes together in a clump. They go together. Verse 15, he can sympathize with our weaknesses because like us, he's been tempted in all things. Sympathize means to feel for and to have compassion for. It literally means, so you see sim, that means like with or together in patheo, which is feeling, with feeling. So Jesus has feeling for us when we're struggling. He can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been just like us. He knows, if y'all remember when I taught Jesus the human, we went through all of those different emotions and experiences Jesus had. Now, what does weakness mean? I had a blog for four years. I hated the name. I'm just going to let y'all know. I hated the name. I chose it out of obedience because God told me to use it. It was called celebrating weakness. I hate it, <laughs> but I did it. And thank God a year ago, he let me change the name. I got hate mail <laughs> because of that name. But anyway, weakness means strengthless. What it means, it's an area of your life where you need strength. Okay? Weakness, strengthless. It's an area where you need strength. And I like to say it is not an area of your life that is permanent, but it's temporary. It's an area of your life where you temporarily need strength. Okay? That's a weakness. That's a weakness. Now, my blog was called Celebrating Weakness because Paul said, I will boast about my weakness. A definition of celebrate is to publicly announce. Weakness, areas of your life where you temporarily need strength. It's not, it's not a lack of God, but it's a need of God. It's an area where you need God. That's what a weakness is. And I've got a lot of them. <laughs> I'm doing really well tonight, but you know, sometimes we're broken or we're hurt or we're grieving. We might be anxious. Our mood might be plummeting. We might have gotten some bad news. We might be sad. We might be confused. We might be angry. There's a lot of ways in our human condition where we need strength. Because if we didn't need strength, we wouldn't need God. I need strength. I need God. I know when I am struggling the most is when I am depending on God the most. And God brings me there to those places where I have to depend on him. Jesus' heart is, this is a Lisa Morgan Moore quote. Jesus' heart is moved with compassion for you when he sees where you need strength. So just to review, why can he sympathize with our weaknesses? Hebrews 2.8, he himself was tempted in that which he suffered. Verses 4.15, Verse 415, 
He was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I like how Holman put it. He says, Jesus is experienced. Jesus is experienced in what it's like to be a human. Now, he's God, but he's got cred. He's got street cred. He knows what it's like to walk with bones and skin and hair. Holman says, we find much comfort in being reminded that Jesus' experience of temptation matched our own with an experienced Savior like Jesus. We're encouraged to come into his presence with boldness and confidence to claim the mercy and grace which we desperately need. Temporarily strengthless. So, Jim, am I making a lot of noises? Is it just me? Okay. It's the cords. And I move a lot. So Jesus is experienced, but he's also approachable. For me, learning about Jesus being human and studying this humanity of Jesus a lot helps me to approach him with that confidence. Just like people, because God has me share my areas where I'm temporarily strengthless quite often, I'm approachable to people. They'll come to me and they'll say, I'll share this with you because I know you won't judge me because they know I don't have any room to judge them because <laughs> I'm just temporarily strengthless just like them. He's approachable. He's experienced. He's an approachable and experienced high priest. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but chapter 9 says, is it chapter 9 or 11? It's the leaven. It says he intercedes for us in the presence of God. It is. He's interceding for us. Some of us need it more than others. Really, we all need it. <laughs> but he's interceding for us. I like to, a lot of my lines I use is because I've written about it or spoken about it. I just say his full-time job is praying at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God. Right now in the presence of God, Jesus is praying for you. Full-time job. I like that. I need it. I need it. Okay. So Jesus was human. So let's just review the indicative. He was made, he was human, made like us in all things because of his humanity. He was tempted. He's merciful, he's faithful, he can sympathize with our weaknesses and help us when we're tempted. That's the truth. Because of that, because we know of his humanity, it tells us he's approachable, he's experienced. It gives us confidence to draw near in his presence. That's the imperative. Let us draw near with confidence to his throne. So let's talk about this throne of grace. I found over time different definitions of grace that resonate with me. I think I originally was taught grace. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Grace is the free gift. Wearsby says grace is the kindness of God, the sky Warren Wearsby, the kindness of God towards undeserving people. I love that one. 
It's God's kindness towards people who don't deserve it. And one definition, the Hebrew definition of grace from the book of Ruth, just really blessed me. Um, I don't have the word here, but it means to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior. To bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior. The extending of favor when it's neither expected or deserved. So God bends or stoops down to extend grace, to extend favor to us. And there's nothing we could ever do to deserve it. All of our um, righteous deeds are like filthy rags. John Bevere, so here's the second way of, of looking at grace. John Bevere says God's grace is his empowering presence in our lives. And if you study the Bible, you'll start to see those two different types of grace. Paul says he was made a minister according to the grace given to him. That's a supernatural power to do something. For by grace we have been saved through faith. That's that God's kindness towards undeserving people. Okay? Two different kinds of grace. It's an empowering presence of God to be who you're supposed to be and do what you're supposed to do. John MacArthur, who I'm not even going to go, <laughs> he's had some, he's been in the news a lot. If you don't know, you can look him up. But I do like this definition. Um, he's, yeah, he says, the grace in which we stand not only saves but enables. So he just puts it very concisely. The grace in which we stand saves and enables. So there's a saving grace and an empowering grace. And some of you might remember, it's been um, a year, a year and a half, I think, when I taught, when Brian and I did the M&M example, talking about Jesus and the grace that never runs out. Because Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's in John 1. And it says, and from his fullness, we've all received in grace upon grace, which means grace never-ending grace, inexhaustible supply of grace. It's grace upon grace. And so we demonstrated how the M&Ms would never run out. So that is what Jesus is like, grace in the pla place of grace. So why do we need this grace at the throne of grace? My road rage story that I alluded to on Sunday I was coming out of my neighborhood, and I was in a, um, a, a road, like the main road going out of the neighborhood. Speed limit was 35. I allow myself to do 40. I was going 37, and this big truck comes right up behind me. You know, he'd back off, and then he'd right up behind me. And then he passed me. Now, my first thing I did was I slammed on the brakes as soon as he passed me because he made me mad. I knew it was coming. So he goes around me, and we go up to the stoplight at Market Street. Well, now he's in front of me. In my little SUV, it's got a button that says sport. And when you press that button, it'll go. So about three or four times going down Market Street, I would go right up to his bumper. Now, I had, like, my foot right near the brake the whole time, and about the third, I did. Brian would not approve, but he made me mad. And about the fourth time, the Holy Spirit just said, is that what Jesus would do? Is that what Jesus would do? 
Um, so that is why we need the throne of grace. This was about 10 days ago. <laughs> like it was not <laughs> 20 years ago. It was like 10 days ago. A little road rage. What is that? I should, but I put, pushed that S button and I showed him what I could do. I mean, I was just going 37. I like raced up right to, yeah. Is that how y'all, yeah. See, I don't drive like people in New York or Atlanta. I drive like a southerner. Oh, okay. So we get ourselves into messes. We mess up. We are still in this fragile tent that can be tempted to anger and road rage, even when they're the sweet little church lady. We say things, we think things. We're in this tent and we're tempted. And sometimes, sometimes we follow that way out that God gives us. And sometimes we get enticed right into that sin. That's why we need a throne of grace. How can Jesus give us grace? Well, he was probably mad too. We know, I think it's John 2, where he had that righteous anger and upended the, the tables in the temple, drove them out. They were. He knows what it's like to be angry. He knows it all. So there are times when we need this relatable Jesus. We need this relatable Jesus when we're concerned, when we need provision, when we don't like our jobs, when our children are making bad decisions, when we're, when we're betrayed, when everyone leaves us, when our marriage is falling apart, when there's an unexpected diagnosis, when we're mourning the loss of a loved one, there are lots of times when we are in time of need because Jesus knows what it's like to be us, because he knows what it's like to be tempted, to live in a human tent. Because of that, we can draw near to the throne of grace. An empowering grace, his kindness when we least deserve it. He bends and stoops in kindness to undeserving people like us. That's grace. When we are temporarily strengthless in that time of need is when we're encouraged to draw near with confidence. With confidence, right? With confidence. We don't have to draw near with fear. Sin will separate. Sin separates from us from God. And, and when I've really blown it, sometimes it might take me a day or two to feel restored. Or if I've blown it really big, or the enemy's just really hounding on me with seduction after seduction after seduction, then it might take a little bit longer. But sin separates, but John 1, 7 and 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. We're cleansed long before we feel cleansed. We confess it, he cleanses us, 
Takes us a little bit to get that indicative back. Okay, God, I'm sorry. I know you love me. <laughs> Didn't mean to do it. Thank you for giving me. Takes a little bit for us to build that confidence back up. But it's, if it's taken you weeks and months and years to have your confidence after you've fallen, then call the church office because you might need some ministry. You're living in that shame that I talked about. You're, you made a mistake, but you're not a mistake. You did wrong, but you're not wrong in the core of your beating, being. You, you did a bad thing, but you are not bad. Now, the enemy will beat us up with guilt, shame, condemnation over and over because the enemy doesn't want us to go to that throne of grace. Because if we have access to that throne of grace, that empowering grace of God, he can use us. Because we'll come up here when we haven't looked at our notes in 36 hours and say, I can teach. Because God, you're faithful. You'll show up. You'll help me. I can go to the streets because I know when I get there, you're going to show up. I can, I can pray for the sick because I know when I do it. You'll be there. I can go in the jails because I know you'll give me the words when I get there. I can go to my job and love my boss who's hard on me because you'll give me the empowering grace. There is an empowering grace. The enemy wants to keep you out of the presence of God so you don't have access to that empowering grace, which is supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do what you are unable to do. That's why the enemy wants to keep you in shame, keep you afraid of God, away from God, dragging your head. Oh, God, no. Repent. Repent. Do what you need to do that you don't do it again, like disable the S on my car. Disable that sport mode. Repent. Do what you need to prevent the sin again. But then, draw near with confidence. We have access. And the more we study Hebrews, we're going to see it over and over. That one sacrifice was enough to pay for that sin, even if you've committed it 20 times over and over and over again. Because sometimes it takes us that long to get it right. I mean, think about an addict. Grace doesn't run out for the addict. Grace doesn't run out. There's always grace for them to turn and get it right. Because we are in frail human tents that we can't get it right sometimes on the 19th time, even though we're trying. But Jesus knows what temptation is like. He can give us grace. Because he knows what it's like to be human, we can draw near with grace when we've really blown it. We can go out and do things that in our flesh we know we can't do. I am flying to Costa Rica in two weeks. I'm afraid to fly, y'all. But I'm getting on that plane because I know God is faithful. Now, Miss Addie, you're sitting beside me on the flight to Atlanta. If she comes back with scars, you'll know that that first trip was kind of, that first flight was hard. Brian knows. You, Brian can tell you what I'm like to sit by. But I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. Because there's an empowering grace. There's an empowering grace. In my flesh, I am afraid. 
But Jesus has faced fear before. He knows what fear's like. He can have compassion on me. He can have sympathy for me. And even though I'm afraid, I can boldly come to the throne and say, Jesus, I'm afraid. Help me. I can find mercy. I know I'm not supposed to be afraid. I'm going to find mercy there. He's not going to punish me, even though I deserve it, maybe. I'm going to find grace. He's going to give me favor, even though I'm afraid. He's going to give me help. Why? Because he knows what it's like to be human. He says, come on, baby. Come on to my throne of grace. I know what it's like. Come here. Oh, don't drag your head and say, oh, Lord, they all have faith. They can all get on the plane. I can't get on the plane. What's wrong with me? I'm just a mess. I'm defective. He knows what it's like. He says, come with confidence. Okay, Jesus, I need mercy. I need grace. I'm afraid. I know your word says don't be afraid like a gazillion times, one for every day of the year. I know it all. I'm afraid. But I'm afraid. I can walk right into his presence with confidence. Not because I'm special or anything I've done, but because of what he did. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He represents me before God. Amen. He's paid for all my sin, shame, and weaknesses. He knows what it's like. He knows, doesn't know what it's like to be Lisa exactly, but he knows what it's like to struggle. <laughs> To want to have faith but not have it. I don't know. Did he ever doubt? Maybe. I don't know. I have to think about that. He didn't sin. He did say, Father, if it be your will, take it from me. So he didn't know how it was all going to turn out. I don't know. He knew. But he understands us. He probably doubted in a person, so he knows what doubt is like. <laughs> I mean, we know people failed him, betrayed him, fled from him. He, he probably, he could have had some trust issues, right? Because of how people treated him. But anyway, he knows what it's like to be a human. He may not know my exact circumstances. He may not know how I can doubt, but he knows Humans are doubtful. I mean, God knows, clearly. <laughs> God knows. So, we come with confidence. We come with confidence. Um, as we close, I just want to tell you what this word confidence means. It means free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance. It's freedom in speaking. It's unreserved speech. And the root word literally means all speech. All speech. So when you come before God, I believe that's a place where you can be honest. Now, you, there are times I've been angry at God, and I've been honest and let him know I was angry. There are things that we don't always understand and there are times that our relationship with God can, can be tense when we don't understand why things are the way they are. Or actually, our relationship is always secure. Just like my relationship with my husband is always secure. But sometimes our fellowship can be a little tense, right? 
Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes that fellowship. No, it's, it's usually me. He's put up with me 25 years. Sometimes your fellowship can be off. Your relationship with God is always secure. Sometimes your fellowship can feel off. <laughs> but we can come boldly and say what's on our hearts, what's on our minds. He's ready to hear. He's ready to give us grace. He doesn't judge. He knows how to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. We're going to see that next week in Scripture. He knows what it's like. Confidence. Come with confidence. What does that mean? You can come and be honest. You can have courage. You can be assured he's going to receive you. But it means all speech. I mean, I feel very confident coming to my husband. I can come and say, honey, can I get like an eighth solar tube in my house? I mean, I have confidence coming and asking him that. I already know what the answer is. We've worked that one out, right, honey? He says, yes, honey, if that makes you happy. <laughs> I love light. Like my house is like a greenhouse. I've got the most of these little solar tubes in Wilmington because I love light. But anyway, I have confidence coming to my husband. I can... I can ask him or tell him anything. I've told you a lot of things. Like when the enemy is trying to seduce me with stuff I would never say to y'all, I can tell him. I can tell him. All speech, confidence. Jesus has compassion on us. He's approachable. Because of who he, Jesus is and what he's done, not because of who we are or what we've done, we can come to him with confidence. We can come near to God. It's our identity in Christ, that's the indicative, that drives our closeness to God. That's the imperative. Our identity of, in Christ is the reason why we can draw close to God. So, the author of Hebrews is trying to tell the people that old way, that old way where Joshua couldn't lead you into the rest of God. There's still a rest. Be diligent to enter that rest. Jesus is better. He's better than the old ways. He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the prophets. Chapter 4, he's better than Joshua. He can lead you into that rest. Chapter 2, 3, 4, next week, he's a man. He was a man. He knows what it's like. Don't quote me to say he ever doubted. That was just Lisa wondering out loud. Could Jesus doubt? Not going to go there. But he knows what it's like to be us. And that's why he can have feeling, compassion, sympathy, mercy on us. He's relatable. He's approachable. He's experienced. So because of all of these things, therefore, let us, let us, what? Draw near where? To this throne of undeserved favor and empowering grace. Why? To receive mercy and grace to help when in that time of need. So God, I thank you that you know that we as your people, there are times when we will have need.
when we will have weaknesses, when we will be temporarily strengthless. And God, it's in those times that we know that you will strengthen us. You will never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You're with us always. You won't abandon us. You won't leave us standing at the altar because you're faithful. When we're faithless, you're faithful because you cannot deny yourself. And so, God, because we know that there is a throne of grace, that there is a throne of unmerited favor, there is a throne of enabling grace, God, we can draw near to you, and then we can allow you to send us out, God, because we know that as we trust in you and depend on you, God, you will enable us to do what we can't do in our flesh. And it's all to your glory. We thank you for the truth of what you've done. Now, God, let that truth drive us to these exhortations that you're commanding us to do. We can do what your word tells us to do because of what you've done and who you are, which defines who we are. So God, help us. Come Holy Spirit, help us. And we just thank you for being that merciful and faithful high priest. And let us know, let us come to know, give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are, Jesus, so that we will come to know in the coming weeks what it means that you're our high priest, what you did for us, what this covenant means, what this better covenant, better blood, better sacrifice, all of it, better promises. Help us to understand all the ways that you are superior to anything the world could offer. I bless those that have come, that have had grace with me tonight. I thank you that you did not leave me standing at the altar, God. You showed up. Every word that, every word that gives you glory, I thank you for. And every word that's not of you, I just pray it would fall to the ground. In Jesus' name, amen.